Welcome to the Recon Podcast. Fetish and the law have always had a complicated relationship. Although the fetish scene has its own established rules of play, the law of the land have their own. In this episode, Antoine and I are joined by Miles Jackman, an award-winning lawyer specialising in obscenity law and sexual freedoms, and who has dedicated his career to challenging the legal frameworks in which sexual morality is constrained. Please enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Recon Podcast. I'm Scully and today I'm joined by Antoine, who's waving. (laughs) They can't see you, you have to say hello. (laughs) I'm waving, you can't see me. And we're also joined by Miles Jackman. Um, Hello. Today we're going to be talking about fetish and the law. I appreciate this is probably quite a hard-hitting subject, but I think it's an important one to cover. When it comes to sort of sexual rights and um, and pe- how people conduct themselves um, in the bedroom, I think it's important to know sort of who governs that um, and why it's governed. So today we have Miles Jackman, who is an obscenities lawyer. Uh, Miles, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, So by way of an introduction, normally when I'm in a police station, I say for the benefit of the tape, my name is Miles Jackman and I'm a solicitor, which I have to say under PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. Um, I am a criminal defence lawyer, but I have developed a niche in obscenity law which is essentially what I consider to be the interaction between law and morality around sexuality. In other words, a lot of sexual acts clearly are cultural taboos. So, for example, water sports, which had previously been considered to be obscene under the Obscene Publications Act and is now effectively legal. So it was always legal to do, but it was illegal to represent so you could film yourself with your partner pissing on each other and that's fine but the moment that you click send on your mobile to send it to your partner you would have committed a criminal offense and that makes no sense to me so this is what obscenity is about basically trying to make sense of what you are allowed to do with your body as a human you're one of the only lawyers that actually specialise in this area. What what made you decide to really specialise in this? Yeah, I mean, there are a few other people over time who have done similar things, like Jeffrey Robertson, who's the head of Dirty Street Chambers, uh, was very famous. He did uh, Gaze the Word trial, for example, which I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with, but the gay bookshop in Bloomsbury, which was threatened with being shut down for holding shot horror gay titles in a gay bookshop, a very surprising that that would happen there. Yeah, great. <laughs> and uh, so there, there have been a few people in the past who, in British law, have tried to uh, keep the forces of cultural censorship out. But uh, I very much made it explicit by saying I am an obscenity lawyer. And like you say, I basically triangulated my interest in alternative sexuality, human rights and the law, and the visual image, because I used to be a filmmaker way back when and so I've always been interested in representations and of course we don't often think about porn as media but obviously all of the sort of normal media studies interpretations of cultural objects applies to porn and so when the law comes 
comes into it, uh, as I said before, we start getting morality on the table and that's where it gets complicated. I just wanted to ask you briefly about your first ever case, which I think was the Soho spanking case. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, just after I qualified, I was working in a firm uh, on the edge of Soho and um, they had, this was about 2008, I think. So uh, the extreme porn law hadn't come into effect. But they've seen Publications Act, which are 1959-1964, but come back from Victorian legislation. So it's a very old law that has been constantly re-evaluated through time. And uh, there was a spanking shop uh, in Soho at the time around Brewer Street which sold all kinds of hardcore CP, so corporal punishment for those of you who aren't familiar with the language. Um, I think most of our viewers will probably be quite familiar <laughs> with corporal punishment. It's, I only say that because there's another kind of CP that we don't want to talk about. Oh. <laughs> Yes. But, uh, yeah. So I'm just making it clear that I'm talking about the spanking caning equivalent. Now, uh, we'll be talking about this later, but according to the Spanner case, you can only consent to injury, which is below or equivalent to transient and trifling. In other words, very minimal bruises, welts, and no blood drawn. And the store in Soho was selling Czechoslovakian uh, caning pornography where women were being beaten with uh, canes and other heavy implements until they bruised very heavily and bled in some cases. Now, as you say, your listeners are not going to be particularly surprised by that level of activity if they're serious fetishists. But the law says you can't consent to that on your body. Now, the uh, porn store clerk who was arrested in a sting operation when there were more porn shops in Soho, the police used to regularly patrol them. Uh, and he had been working at a store before and so was looking at a minimum of six months in prison as a consequence of just being behind the store counter for selling this pornography. And uh, I wrote a six-page written document for the court trying to contextualise how society has changed around kink, SM, fetish, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And so I made comparisons with the club torch garden having uh installation pieces at the south bank there was the mapplethorpe exhibition at the barbican gallery which featured anal fisting and i think footing as well but certainly anal fisting um and i talked about cultural icons of the time like angelina jolie and so on and how fetish was back in the day going mainstream i believe you referenced is it mr and mrs smith is that, yeah. Yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, yeah. A, if, if people haven't seen the film, there's a scene where Angelina Jolie is looking really good in leather and has a whip. I, I'm going <laughs> to say it, and I never thought I'd get to say these words uh, out loud, but um, I really like Angelina Jolie. I really like leather, and she's wearing a really dreadful corset. It's really cheap. <laughs> she does not look as good as she should, gentlemen. But you there should- you go. 
You should write that in an email and send it to her. <laughs> I'm sure she will be incredibly glad to hear from the obscenity lawyer who is using his media studies to critique her wardrobe. I mean, we could all sign it. I'm happy to put my name to that. Um, so, yeah, basically, the gentleman in, in, in case was supposed to get six months in prison, and I got him a suspended sentence on the basis of saying that cultural values had changed. Now, the case that gave me the right to do that was from 1982, I think. And um, so it was a pre-internet era, video, so VHS, Betamax kind of period. And it talks about, the judge talks about how it's okay for pornography to be consumed in gentlemen's clubs and rugby clubs but not sold commercially. So it's a very patriarchal decision, which is kind of sexist, which mm. assumes women, for example, don't enjoy pornography, that men only consume it in private with each other, and so on. So I use the example of the internet has changed everything for porn. and yeah. um, He didn't go to prison. That's great. And um, I guess the first topic I, I want to bring up with you is actually about the rough sex defense, which is um, a piece of, uh, it's a bill that has recently come through. Um, oh, it's been put through, is it England and Wales? Mm-hmm. Um, and the bill uh, rules out sexual con- consent. Sorry, no, let me say that again. Don't worry, so, it's really complicated. So, right, again, didn't go to law school, but this is my understanding of it. <laughs> uh, the current law says that if someone Um, kills another person during sexual activity they could be charged with manslaughter alone while to murder someone there needs to be there needs to have been an intention to kill that person or cause them grievously grievous bodily harm is that correct yeah that'll do yeah okay so um if you could just maybe explain what the rough sex defense is and uh and the bill that has been proposed sure so this is a very sensitive and delicate subject but As you said, the difference between murder and manslaughter is one of intention. So if you hit Antoine, just meaning to hit him, and he... I'm sorry he's, to say he's already cut his head today. I, I can't put him through any more pain. <laughs> there is there is there is a, a thing called the eggshell skull defense, which never works because if Antoine, for example, had a terribly thin skull and hit his head on the ground and died as a consequence. You are responsible for it, even though you couldn't foresee that he necessarily had that. Mm. But what is important is to say that you were, you didn't mean to kill Antoine. And of course, because he is very tragically dead in this scenario, he can't give evidence to say that you didn't mean to kill him. So you are now in front of the police and eventually a court where a jury will need to make a decision on a sensitive subject. Now, what this bill suggests is removing the possibility of you being able to say that it was manslaughter because you were engaged in a sexual game. Mm -hmm. So... This is really difficult because it comes from the Centre for Women's Justice who have done some excellent work on things like particularly male-on-female domestic violence. Obviously, they're male-on-male and female-on-male, but predominantly domestic violence statistics show it is a massive problem of men-on-women. And so 
the way that they factored this in is to say that the defense itself is sort of morally unacceptable because people might lie. So in this scenario, you did mean to kill Antoine, mm-hmm. but you're pretending you didn't. This happened in the Grace Mullane case in New Zealand, where very tragically a British woman was murdered by a local who then put her body in a case and tried to dispose of it, right? And then went on a date with someone else the next night. Okay, so not really showing any guilt or remorse. The circumstances around it suggest entirely that this was a cold, calculated, almost serial killer-esque endeavour, right? So not pleasant at all. The jury had no problem in finding him guilty, Mm. despite the fact that he said it was manslaughter, okay? Now, the important thing here are juries, which are normal people drawn from everyday life who use their common sense to come to a conclusion. And if you won't allow a jury a certain defence to consider, you've created a real problem for the English law as a whole. So, for example, self-defence defences, right? So in this scenario... Antoine goes to punch you, but you punch him first in lawful self-defense. Now, at the moment, that's perfectly legal to do that. You're entitled to defend yourself with a reasonable amount of force equivalent to what you fear is going, Antoine is going to use against you. So can you imagine removing the self-defense defense. You wouldn't be able to defend yourself in public for fear that you would be accused of assaulting people. Likewise, an alibi defense. It wasn't me. Uh, I wasn't there at the time. I was with my boyfriend, but I'm married, and I don't want my husband to know that I'm seeing someone else, right? So Mm -hmm. classic alibi type scenario, sort of morality coming in there a bit, as you see about the whole marriage and alleged infidelity thing. So what I'm saying is that not only is this very dangerous for SM, it's also dangerous for the law as a whole. And the people promoting it don't quite seem to have understood. And likewise, by removing the manslaughter to defence, it is possible that a jury, when presented with the options murder or not guilty, because manslaughter has been taken away, they may go for a not guilty when the person clearly was guilty of manslaughter, but that that opportunity has been removed. Miles, I want to know, like in the if we're looking at it from the perspective of let's say two kingsters having a session, yeah, and let's say something might uh, something doesn't go to plan, sure, and there, and there is an accident, which we know that tragically this this occasionally does happen. And I think it's one of the reasons why when you're in the world of kink in BDSM, we always talk about things like having safety words and having regulations and having agreements and having discussions with the partner or the person that you're playing with um, beforehand so that you have these safety things in place. And if an accident does happen, I mean, do people who are involved in extreme forms of BDSM practices or kink plays, you know, or even maybe something which they may not think is extreme as like breath play, um, where we know a lot of accidents go wrong with um, with breath play. Um, is this something in terms of when we're, you know, having our most fun uh, kinky sexual time? Do we need to be thinking about this? 
That is the massive question. You, you've hit the nail on the head there because, yes, people can get carried away in the moment. But if we take your example now and compare it to the Grace Mullane, so you two are, sorry for do this to you again, but you two are now play partners. And Lucky Antoine. <laughs> Lucky everyone. Um, That's what I see. Join our OnlyFans page at. <laughs> so in this scenario, you do bless play with Antoine, and Antoine has some kind of episode from it. So he passes out, but you don't know what's happened to him. Now, if he dies to compare it to the Grace Mullane case, what I think a jury will take into account is what you do immediately afterwards. So, for example, if you put his body in a suitcase and go on a date the next night, they're not likely to believe that you're very consensual kinksters. But if you can prove things like, as you say, safe words, safe saying consensual, risk-aware consensual kink, whatever you guys play by, but you know what I mean, if you have a framework, you've obviously had discussions before you even met, so where did you immediately meet? So if it was on the app, did you share messages? What did you talk about? Did you talk about breath play in advance? Uh, has Antoine ever done breath play before? Did you have much experience? of it with previous partners and so on and uh, just a general warning um, I'm not the fun police by any means but obviously breath play is one of those things that people really need to know what they're doing and not crush the throat and I can't be much more clear on that <laughs> restriction can be in other forms which you will be able to find out about if you don't know by doing some research and that is always a good thing to be aware of as well research what you want to do before you do it yeah everyone and please play safe <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'm, I'm really not being the fun police sir. <laughs> uh, so yeah uh, from play partner's perspective yes Potentially, it's very serious because, as I said, if you killed Antoine accidentally, that's clearly manslaughter. And I would expect all sorts of tragic things afterwards, like a tearful phone call to 999 immediately going, oh, my God, Antoine's just collapsed. What do I do? Right. Mm -hmm. So all of the things that I would suggest would make it look very credible that you were just subject to a dreadful, tragic, life-changing accident. On that cheerful note. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about, um, I think you touched upon this a bit earlier, uh, fetish as a taboo in society. So how do you think, and I think this is a kind of a question for all of us to answer, how do you think fetish and particularly gay fetish is seen by society? The, and Ooh. I want to say the wider society. Yes, good question. So when I've done my trials, which have involved gay defendants or male-on-male -male sex, so that was Simon Walsh's uh, porn trial, Michael Peacock's obscenity trial and the Twink trial, etc. I always say that one of the problems that people like that face societally is that it's a, it's a niche within a niche. Mm. So obviously you've got, first of all, the idea that gay community is 
relatively speaking, a smaller niche community, and then fetish within that. And we know that there are some conflicts there. So not only are you guys having to deal with mainstream homophobia, there may be kinkphobia within the gay community against fetish by certain people. So there that's absolutely another problem. Is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, quite. Uh, I know a lot of lesbians who go onto the basically mainstream kink scene just because they find it really difficult on the female gay scene to indulge in what they enjoy quite naturally and end up dating by women that way. So, it, you know, the same happens on the gay scene less, but it's still a problem. How about you guys? I really want to hear your thoughts on this. I think that there's quite a taboo still going. One of the things I've realized, yeah, I've been in the job for 14 years. I just celebrated a 14 year anniversary. And I can tell you that my, <laughs> my eyes have been opened beyond belief. And I've met some really weird and crazy and quirky and wonderful and amazing people, you know, on my travels around. Um, and it's really interesting to see how the kink is perceived in so many different places. What I also find very interesting is how it's perceived even within my own personal circle, you know, my personal circle of friends. Yeah. I have a set of king friends and I have a set of non-king friends. And it's often very difficult to explain my job to the non-king friends. You know, the immediately the thing that they think is, oh my God, you're selling sex. They, you know, or you're selling whips and chains and dildos. And it's like, it's just we're promoting an alternative lifestyle, something yeah. else that other people enjoy. And what's interesting is more often than not, a lot of the other people who I know would deem themselves to be mainstream gays are not at all. I think there are lots of things that we all know that people enjoy sexually. They might never see as taboo, but for some reason they don't want to be visibly connected with it in any way, shape or form. Um, yes. And for us, I think when we're, when we're out working, let's say, if I can make a more direct correlation with my job, uh, one of the simplest things is as an events producer, my job is to go out and find venues for us to do parties and host events and things in. And one of the things people always say is, oh my God, this venue's amazing. Why don't you do a party here? Or why don't you do it there? And I think that they don't realize that the people who own these spaces are not so open to what we do. When they hear the things about kink, they get really terrified. Um, I have been to see some really amazing spaces in London and Berlin, San Francisco. And one of the most common things that people say to us is, you know, my venue is often used for things like car shows or for a fashion week or something else. And if those people know that we're hosting your kind of event in our venue, it will be bad for our business and it will look bad for us. And so therefore we won't, you know, we don't want to be connected with you. Um, and I think over time you come to realize that the taboo is, it's, it's quite real. And yeah. as we think that so much about the gay uh, gay community is becoming so much more acceptable, but kink, however, not so much so. No, I totally agree with you. Um, the irony when it comes to sort of finding fetish venues is like, I mean, running those sort of nights, the, the crowd that we do get are very well behaved. They, like, There's never going to be, there's never any fights. I mean, there's, they're all a fairly decent crowd of people who, um, who come out and have a good time, turn up, are, are respectful. So 
if there's any venue owners out there, like you should really start start giving us like some venues because like we could put on some really good nights and you, you're really missing a trick. I couldn't agree with you more. And the same with venues is broadly true of the mainstream straight scene as well. Um, it's a real problem. And as you say, people come up with great venues and they could be linked to fashion, which may co-opt the iconography of fetish. But when it actually comes down to it, I think you're right. The taboo is, oh, you hurt people. Yeah. And my argument is, well, yes, it's consensual. So it's all about consent. And I think for public discourse, we need to really foreground that and explain like we've just been talking about safe words safe thing consensual you know aftercare all uh, skills learning um my understanding is that the gay scene is probably better at mentoring you guys may disagree that would be really interesting but all of those things that show that we are responsible adults who are exploring our private sexuality but it is part of our identity at the end of the day. Oh, completely. I looked at doing um, an outdoor event a few years ago, and I remember sitting in front of the council panel talking about what we wanted to do. And the lady in charge of licensing, I remember she said to me, I know what you gays are like, especially you fetish boys, you get up to a lot. And she said, we would love you to be able to do this, but the, the community isn't as ready for this as you think they are. And she no. said to me, which is quite sad. She said, we wish they were more open, but they're, they're not. And so if you do this, you know, they had a whole other list of precautions we would have needed to have had in place, which would have made it financially impossible for us to, you know, host a good event. So because of the taboo, we see it actually creates a number of obstacles for us in trying to do the things that people would like us to do. Um, and we simply just can't. I think as, uh, at this point we should really like, I mean, Recon is, uh, is a, obviously a business and we're, we have to play by UK rules, but then we also, um, have to apply by th things like Apple rules or Android rules when it comes to, um, showing things on our platforms. Um, so as much as we'd like to sort of say, oh, you know, we're, you know, as a brand, you know, we, we sort of like want to push things and help people explore their sexuality in a safe way. We are, we are restricted to work within guidelines, not within just UK law, but like, as Anton said, when we travel, we have to be very mindful of other sort of laws abroad. And then, yeah, even the sort of the platforms in which we, um, we operate have their own sort of sort of set of rules and instructions we have to abide by. Yeah. No, you make a really trenchant point because not only uh, do we all have to abide by UK law, but we're also to a certain extent beholden to corporate interests, as you say, whether it's Apple Absolutely. or Facebook in terms of freedom of expression, uh, what is acceptable on those platforms is very different. And Apple, although I am broadly a massive fan, uh, particularly when it comes to privacy, have always said that they are a family company and pornography does not belong on their platforms, which is why Safari is such a nightmare on your iPhone to get certain content on. But I think that has to be respected. They're an American corporation and they are at least not criticizing, say, just gay platforms. It's universal to all sexuality. But that has a big problem when you are a niche within a niche. Hmm. I've got one more, more, more question for you. Um, first of all, how 
does the law generally view fetish and how far should that law be able to interfere with private family or cultural matters? Great question. So ultimately, the law is a bit uncomfortable, I would say, about this area because the the guideline case is the case of Spanner, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, R and Brown case, um, which, as I said earlier, says that you cannot consent to any injury that is above transient and trifling. And as we probably all know, that was all down to gay men who had been filming each other privately in private situations. And the police came to find the VHS tapes and thought that they had hit a major uh, snuff production ring. They exercised a warrant and it turned up at one of the supposed uh, victims' addresses only for him to open the door and offer them a cup of tea. And when they find live bodies, police decided to prosecute for what the people involved had been doing to each other sexually. And so there's another example of the subculture not being understood at all. You have led excellently onto my next kind of point of conversation, which is actually about the Operation Spanner, um, which was a police investigation to the same sex male uh, sadomasochism in the 80s and you again you sort of you talked about it being sort of a, a very niche sort of sub subgroup of people who are practicing and it actually it was quite a it was quite a big scandal at the time and for, I think um I mean I did a little bit of research into this and there's if anyone if anyone is interested in sort of like gay history then definitely look into this case because it's fascinating there's also there's also an amazing film by a guy called charlie shackleton called lasting marks which uh in which he uh, interviews a a couple of the people who were involved in the case it started off in the magistrate's court and then went to the old bailey court of appeals house of laws and then the european court of human rights so it, it, it it's really escalated quite quite high up didn't it There's a lot to say about this. So, yes, right. First of all, you're right. It came out of the late 80s gay fetish scene. And then it was decided ultimately in the early 90s. And people got involved in the defence at a later stage who I'm told by people who were involved in it, both the defendants and lawyers, that a decision was made at the time to say to the judges who the cases were being presented before and say the House of Lords, Mm. that the best way to get them on side was to say, yes, we know that what these people are doing is disgusting, but they have a right to do it. And I think that was fundamentally wrong. I think that it was a very cowardly way of presenting it and that it should have been these people have a right to do what they're doing. And the state has no right to intervene until they do something so gruesome that it's a problem for life or limb. Since then, various organisations, Countdown on Spanner and so on, have tried to get this law reviewed by the Law Commission. It's been with the Law Commission for like over 20 years. When I'm bored at work, uh, I occasionally call them up every year or so just to find out where where they've lost it down the back of the sofa. Uh, but this case has become current again because it is the guideline on bodily autonomy, agency, and consent. 
for everyone, irrespective of sexuality. So tattoos and body modifications as well, because of the case of Dr. Evil, who yeah. was a body modifier who cut people's tongues, splitting them, ears, etc. And the injuries that that causes would have been beyond transient and trifling. So at the level of grievous bodily harm. I got my uh, tongue split last year and I had to go to Nice to get it done. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't know. I've not had mine done. But it does seem yeah, like... still time. I'm a terrible coward. I don't even have tattoos. Uh, needles are genuinely a great fear of mine. So, uh, But the point I was making was that it doesn't seem like a, a, an impulsive decision, that one, uh, particularly as you say you had to travel to get it done. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a serious thought about how you are allowed to present your body, mm. and it is, after all, your body, should you not be able to make that decision for yourself? And in this country, we're essentially saying no. And I know that the current Supreme Court were very uncomfortable about revisiting Spanner in mm. this context, and that essentially they didn't want to rethink where the line is drawn. And I, th my thoughts are based on our conversation and others that heavy caning that causes bleeding of a relatively inconsequential level and welts is should be perfectly accepted societally and legally now, and that we need to up the level at which we can consent at law. Uh, but this isn't going to happen anytime soon, I'm afraid. Going back quickly to the Operation Spanner, um, the, the historical context in which it, it took place, um, I don't know if you've ever been, but if you ever, if anyone ever gets a chance to go to the Fetish Archives, I mean, they have an amazing amount of pu uh, publications from that period, so like sort of 70s, 80s. And there is a, there is a lot, there was a lot of publications out um, that were available. And just spending a bit of time with them, it, you sort of get transported into this world where, you know, it, it's fet, like fetish was very prominent. There was a lots of venues that were holding fetish nights. You know, it was a very, and so for this for this case to then be to then sort of escalate to the point it did, it must have made people at that it's within the scene feel very confused because they're part of this very short, small scene which is celebrated and is very con con consistent in. Um, uh, being visual and being being part of part of the gay culture, um, and then then it sort of escalates to the point where people are being put in prison for participating in consensual behaviour. Yes, it's <laughs> shocking. It's, no, 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 no. I mean, it really was an incredibly regressive decision. Um, it's very complicated. It's legal passage to get to the Court of Human Rights. But the fact that at the time when personally it seemed like gay rights were in the ascendancy mm. for all of the legal institutions to say, no, this is unacceptable, was, was a very dated decision at the time. And now, given the internet, the perhaps more mainstream acceptability of certain types of kink and fetish, it's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I give you an example of that. I think it was Lord Templeman, whose lead judgment said, cruelty is uncivilized. So in other words, uh, consensual injury was not taken into account. And yet again, I think the gap here is consent. 
People don't understand that what is being done has been consented to. And that's probably the key area that we all need to promote. Brilliant. We're going to take a break now. Um, in the next half, we're going to talk about the changing classification of the UK rating system and the disproportionate censorship when it comes to gay and fetish sex. And we'll also have some interesting facts from around the world. Antoine, did you know that Regulation is one of Europe's premier kink destinations for fetish wear, toys, electrosex and pub gear? Uh-huh. Yes, I do. Discover a unique range of serious bondage gear, including playroom furniture from Fetish UK and all the restraints you could need to safely explore power exchange and bondage with your partners. Uh, how many partners can I explore this with? How many can you fit in your basement? Uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> did you know you can also browse a wide range of gags, leather cuffs, blindfolds, ropes and wraps and if you're into play that's a little bit more restrictive you'll probably enjoy their range of straight jackets and sleep stacks made to order with leather or latex latex my fave just putting it out there letting you know good to know also if you're into steel and chain their range of heavy metal manacles and collars are made in the uk and inspired by classic pre-19th century prison irons so after knowing all that, whether you're new to bondage and want to explore the basics safely or looking for more intense physical restraint, Regulation has a full range of gear and equipment for your next scene. Explore the Soho store in the heart of London. Yes, you can do it safely. There's lots of room to social distance. And if you're going with a sub, maybe just leave them at the door. You have even more space. Or you can shop online at regulation.co.uk slash recon. Remember to add the slash recon so that they know that we sent you. One again, that's shopping online at regulation.co.uk slash recon. Fetish men are everywhere. Download the recon app and discover the world of fetish and kink. Create a profile, upload some photos, choose up to five kinky interests that you want to explore. Cruise and message the thousands of men from around the world. Go to recon.com forward slash app and download the Recon app now, available on iOS and Android. Find your fetish, show your fetish, find fetish men. Welcome back to part two of the Recon podcast, Fetish and the Law. Um, I think we just want to touch back on um, some venue-related venue, venue related things. Miles, we talked a little bit earlier about other things with the law and about licensing. Um, and I think we want to try to understand a little bit more about the law about sex in public versus sex in public venues and sex in spaces and why this might be so difficult for people like myself, you know, hosting King events or when people want to do other things, you know. It's very interesting. I think if you think about the UK versus, let's say, the US, where in most states in the US, it's um, you can't have sex and alcohol in the same premises. Whereas, you know, here in the UK and across uh, on the continent, this is almost like a non-issue. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about these regulations and the guidelines that make this not so easy for us? So I'm just going to start out by saying that because I'm a criminal lawyer, licensing law is not my area of extreme expertise. But because people like yourselves have often asked me about this and the concept fascinates me legally i have asked a number of very senior barristers who specialize in licensing what to do about this and basically it's an enormous gray area which until someone does get a formal license granted to them to have dark rooms playrooms whatever you want to call it within a venue um the council are always going to have the 
the opportunity to reject a license on that basis. So it seems to me that we need within the communities as large someone to come out. And I know on the sort of younger, uh, more sort of and sexual scene. Uh, Club Verboten have been trying this very hard and much like you were talking about earlier, have hit huge amounts of discrimination for sexuality uh, in doing so from actual London borough councils. So with all of that in mind, uh, it's very ambiguous. And I think no one really minds until someone minds. In other words, I've been in spaces like the old hoist in Vauxhall, where all sorts of things would happen quite freely. And it was, as far as I could tell, very well policed internally and externally, relationship with police and local council. That much as I understand, was essentially a victim of rising house prices in the shadow of the American embassy at Nine Elms when it closed down. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been the big problem throughout London and other metropolitan areas, that house prices have meant that clubs now not necessarily considered to be as viable an option. So I'm really glad to see that Backstreet has got its uh, community status kind of guaranteed by law. But my understanding again there is that they've been there for like 30 years continually. And so you can say long-time community asset. And that creates another problem. Uh, how do we protect the spaces we already have as well as uh, getting the legal agreement to do the things that we might all want to do in spaces indoors that are open to the general public, so to speak. So with all of that in mind, yeah, it's a bit of a minefield, I'm afraid. What about something like, you know, let's say during the lockdown, you know, there were a number of people I saw uh, on what people are calling like King Twitter, you know, posting their pictures, getting into gear and going outside and they were having sex um, in cemeteries and parks and in other places. Is there a, a very specific law about sex in public? Yes, so we're talking about public indecency type offences. And uh, as I said earlier, no one's worried until someone's worried. So don't get caught. I think has to be the practical. <laughs> That's half the fun, though. That one. Uh, in a but, previous podcast, we okay, did. Okay, no, I'm going to be serious. About jumping so when you say that's half of the fun, of course, for those people who do indulge in it, that will be half the fun. But consent, yeah, for sure. have people in the general public consented to see you having sex in a public place? And that is something that I think splits people in the kink communities. It plays out in the hetero community as well, that there are people who might like to want to do something, whether it's walking their partner on a lead or something a bit more adventurous in public. So, yes, uh, generally speaking, the sort of public indecency type laws involve two members of the public being outraged, so outraging the public decency. Um, And usually the first one is CC 
CCTV camera operator who's filmed it all, who is so outraged that he, she, or they watched the entire activity uh, and recorded it for posterity. So uh, certainly one of my colleagues had, a, had one which involved a woman filleting a man outside Marks and Spencer's on Camden High Street at four in the morning. And Brilliant. because it was captured on CCTV, the camera operator was uh, considered outraged and there was a Section 9 statement saying how upset they were by this, but the prosecution can prove that any member of the general public had been outraged. So my colleague managed to, if I can say this, get the defendant off. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, when we're talking about uh, public stuff... I think we need to make the really clear distinction between being in a private place, like an enormous uh, estate country thing, which has defined boundaries that you cannot be seen through, and using those kind of places to, you know, the high street, which is problematic for consent. Um, the next thing I'd like to touch upon is actually the like classification of um, images and media and video um, and how, how that is kind of policed across various platforms as well. Okay, so starting at the start, as we talked about both the law and then also corporate regulations. So whereas the law changed in January 2019 that the Obscene Publications Act guidelines by the Crown Prosecution Service, that's essentially the police lawyers, meant that things like fisting and water sports, which had previously been considered to be obscene and therefore you couldn't distribute. So that now means selling DVDs or clicking send on your mobile. Uh, that would have been enough to distribute. Since January 18 months ago, now, fishing, water sports, pretty much all bondage that shows that the person is consenting and has a way to get out, because before they said that bondage with gags was problematic, and I had to explain how safe signals work to a number of uh, civil servants, which was always very entertaining. Uh, and this has changed now. So the essential guideline is if it's legal to do it in real life, you can film it okay. broadly, right? But there's the problem with extreme porn that some of the activities that are banned under extreme pornography are things that you can legally do. So Simon Walsh's porn trial was all about whether anal fisting was likely to cause uh, serious harm and therefore an image of it should not be possessed. So you can have that image on your computer, on your phone, whatever. And whilst we won it, because it was only a jury decision, it has no precedent value, which means that someone else could be charged with having similar porn and they'd have to go through the whole thing all over again. So we still got this slight patchwork of laws, one around possession, i.e. you've got your photos, which would include potentially your selfies but then there's also the distribution side of things which is when you trade pictures with someone and just by clicking send 
according to the law as it is now, that is distribution, one-to-one. So Matt sends Antoine a picture of something that... What do you want, Antoine? (laughs) (laughs) You really put him on the spot there. (laughs) She's still thinking though, isn't she? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there's so much to choose from, isn't there? There really but, is. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, okay. We touched on it a little bit earlier, and I think I just want to maybe explain a little bit for our members just a few of the things, because it's one of the questions when we're also at events or at an exhibition stand that they always come up. And one of the things, especially our poor customer support team get a lot of questions on is on the classification of images. You know, we know like nowadays so much of what's out is media led. And I think what we want people to think about a little bit is, you know, how this all comes about and why some of the things are classified in a very particular way. Um, And I think we, I would like them to remember that, you know, we are a multi-level platform. We're basically dealing with three platforms. We have a website, we have an app, which is uh, iOS led, which is regulated by Apple and the Android app regulated by Google. Um, And of course, Apple and Google have their own sets of guidelines and regulations on what uh, they deem as explicit or sexually explicit and what we can allow people to post. I think the law behind it is, is a really tricky one. I know it, you know, it's changed several times. And if I'm if I'm right, I think there were a number of things which were, let's say, maybe on the statutes, but never. Um, yeah. So age verification. For, yes. Yeah, and the audiovisual services media regulations, 2014, which got a lot of media uh, coverage because of the fact that it was prohibiting images of things from female ejaculation through to fisting and so on. And um, there was a lot of controversy around how that would affect what people were able to see, watch and enjoy. And I think here it's really important that we actually declare this is a free speech issue. So you're right not only to create content and record your bodily autonomy, but also to receive that information too from other people. So it's just as important that people who may not be able to engage in the activities themselves can still get that material for their own personal free expression. Uh, Also, yes, you're right about the extreme porn law. Um, So there there are five categories that you mentioned, which is uh, basically risk of death, risk of serious injury to anus, breasts and genitals, bestiality, necrophilia and rape. Right now, I'm going to crack through these as quickly as I can. So, bestiality and necrophilia are illegal anyway, right? Yes. So, as a matter of sort of legal philosophy, jurisprudence, uh, if an animal or a cadaver cannot consent, then that makes sense legally and logically that they should be prohibited. Rape is a very contentious one because. Obviously, the sort of material that is being talked about is actually fake rape. In other words, uh, consensual 
simulated to look like it were, which, as you said, with uh, the thing about outdoor sex is very exciting to some people. And so this is a really contentious one because I think the majority of people would say that they wouldn't want to know that they were actually consuming media where the person is being genuinely abused. They want to see media, people playing around with the ideas as a sexual fantasy in a consensual adult scenario. And then we've got the last two, which are really important for BDSMers, which is the risk of death. So the reason that law was created was an asphyxia case, was about breath play. Uh, and then finally, the risk of damage to anus, breasts, and genitals, which, as you say, in game male on male play is going to be really key erotic sites. So you've got that law of the state, and then you've got the rules and regulations of the platforms, as you've said. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true that theoretically, Now that it's clear that, say, anal fisting is not only uh, legal but acceptable to record, distribute, possess, because of the rules that, say, Apple have of the kind of content that they'll allow, your members may be in a complicated situation they don't necessarily have thought about or understood before that they can take a picture quite naturally, but they can't then have it on the site, for example. And that's that's going to become a bigger problem broadly, societally, as our understanding where we draw the lines around social media. Uh, so, for example, the incredibly contradictory sort of rules around nipples on Facebook and Instagram, that male nipples seem to be acceptable, female nipples are verboten, and the Facebook gets very confused when it comes to trans nipples, particularly in transition. So that's just really playing out a broader societal concern on a platform and we are thinking here again about free speech rights some people will say well look facebook same as you is a private company and it's their their sandbox their rules and particularly with a big instance like facebook i would say well yes but now it is almost impossible not to be on facebook and have a 21st century digital identity and therefore, you have to play by Facebook's rules. Yeah. So what do we do here? And the same question has come up as you framed it from your perspective. And I think that's very valid. And the sort of activist side of me is saying, well, yeah, we need to talk to Apple and we need to make them understand this is a community and a lifestyle issue and freedom of expression and so on. But that doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be successful. I just want to, you, you, you touched on something which I wanted to sort of bring up about the disproportionate censorship when it comes to gay and particularly gay fetish. Um, yeah. Is that something you could just maybe expand on um, in terms of how the, law, how the law deals with that? So I wrote an article in The Independent about, I think, 2013, accusing the Crown Prosecution Service of being institutionally homophobic because they had just prosecuted three of my clients all of the defendants were gay very different types of gay men uh, all of them into fetish but very different kind of 
experiences in terms of their age. So Michael Peacock, known as Sleazy Michael, uh, calls himself a gay escort and uh, is an incredibly active participant, public and privately. Simon, who had his privacy invaded, was a very private man who was a barrister and a, a magistrate and served on the Corporation of the City of London as a fire alderman, I think it was. And uh, the gentleman in the Twink trial who was uh, anonymous and so represented a totally different type of gay experience. All of these different experiences are impinged upon by the state in the form of the Crown Prosecution Service. And I think therein rises a nub. No one at the Crown Prosecution Service really had any idea of what happened in gay sexual communities, particularly kink fetish type stuff. Now, to what extent is that an institutional failing or just a human failing and how can we within the communities respond to that in a positive way where we can do some outreach and explain what we're about. And that is happening and I hope that having just talked about the change in the Obscene Publications Act guidelines and getting things like fisting and water sports legally accepted means that socially those changes will happen. And you guys mentioned OnlyFans when we were off air, I think it was. But uh, things like that are massive markers. Mm. In fact, a quick story, if I may. Uh, one of my uh, male clients is um, a fairly well-known porn performer who says that despite his stuff being exclusively male, male, gay, he has about a 5 to 10% hardcore subscriber base of heterosexual women who really like watching gay SM because they think it's much more intense and hardcore. And I can, I can understand that. I find that really fascinating that the way that our, our desires are, are much more complex than they're initially constructed to be. You know, uh, so I think these are positive signs, but there's a lot that we in our communities can do to get the message out in a positive, non-threatening way. Thank you. Yeah, um, we've got one more sort of section we want to talk about, which is just like on a bit of a lighter note, some of the sort of um, fetish facts and laws that we sort of we've discovered. And if you have any, we would love to hear. We, I, I think we should try and outdo each other on who's got the weirdest one. So. Antoine, I'm going to let you go first. I've written, I've got a few that I've looked up. Uh, and I think one of the weirdest ones that I found is that in the state of Texas, in the US, it's illegal to have, to possess more than six dildos and to actually use them or let other people <laughs> know that you have them or to make any kind of public performance so as long as it's less than six, you're fine. More than six, you're breaking the law. There are several other states in which it's actually illegal just to own a dildo. You can own a gun. You can, you can get a gun, but it's illegal to own a dildo. I think it's a bit bonkers. Much like Facebook, I think that's emblematic of American morality. <laughs> so, no, 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 totally. Absolutely. No, the, old, the old cliche is that sexuality, uh, no violence, perfectly fine. Europeans, totally different instinct. And the same is true of the platforms. But yeah, that, that rule of six makes no sense. 
Um, I have one which is from Alabama, um, which is anal and oral sex is illegal between unmarried people, which means I've committed a lot of crimes <laughs> in the state of Alabama. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my most extreme story. And if it's too extreme for you, just edit it out. We work for recon. Nothing is too extreme. <laughs> Let us have it. Come on, Give bring it, it on. Us. <laughs> oh, he's drinking. It's about horse and water sport. Oh, the laugh killed it. Did you hear that? <laughs> it's about horse water sports. Okay. And that is legal in this country because no one has made it illegal. Right? So, according at least to my reading of the law, based on a client who had something in his possession of this nature. Being urinated on by a horse is not illegal because it's not bestiality because you haven't penetrated the animal or had the animal penetrate you. So it's not a criminal offence under either bestiality or extreme pornography possession of bestiality. There you go, some hardcore law for you, Jeff. Sometimes I wonder who the people are that, that make these things up. <laughs> Um, so much as the rule of six was arbitrary, it seems that this is very arbitrary. It's, it's, it's a bizarre area of things coming together in odd ways. One of the other things I want to poke in is um, another question that comes up quite often, and it's not something that's really simple, um, and it's things like poppers. Um, and I think people may not be aware that it's actually illegal to travel with poppers on a plane. Um, just in case you don't know, folks, you should not have poppers uh, in your carry-on or even in your check-in. And this is purely because it's uh, it's flammable. So if you're going through, um, you know, if the TSA open your bags, you're very likely, if it's found, to have it confiscated. And you could be cited for traveling with uh, a flammable substance. Not quite the same, but yeah, I would agree as a broad proposition, always check what you're traveling with before you depart, and that includes return flights. Yeah. Because, uh, and I don't want to be the fun police, but uh, having worked at Stansted Airport Police Station for many years, I had a number of people coming over from countries where you could buy things like CS gas spray from over the counter without necessarily realizing that it would be a problem in this country what i'm saying is that something that's bought legally in one country obviously may be illegal in another we're kind of familiar with the idea of drugs and medication being things that we should think about but sex toys yeah i know a lot of people who've had trouble bringing say whips over from say germany to uh london or whatever it is so think ahead <laughs> check ahead <laughs> <laughs> um, Mars, I just wanted to um, ask you, um, do you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners and where can they find you and more information about the activism and work that you do? So, yeah, with the activism, it's mainly been Backlash, who are a pansexual uh, sexual freedoms campaign for consenting adults, basically around BDSM and King. If you have a legal problem and you want some advice, even if it's not my area of crime and obscenity. I know people who can help in all of these things, whether it's privacy and reputation management, family, employment, and so on. So do give me a shout. You can just Google me, Miles Jackman with a Y, and you'll find on my website 
my contact details, uh, mobile, email, whatever it is, just give me a call. And if you are in the community and you hear of a friend who has a problem, likewise, just get them to reach out to me. Even if I can't help directly, I will recommend someone I trust. Thank you. I want to I want to finish on one last sort of one last point, uh, which I think is on your website, where you talk about your own personal career goal being to challenge that House of Lords decision. So it was um, R versus Brown, and it was a quote by Lord Templeman, I believe, which is "Pleasure derived from infliction of pain is an evil thing. Cruelty is what's uncivilized. Uncivilized." And you you put forward a, a quote that you would like to challenge that. Yeah, from- there's, a, there's a Derek Jarman thing. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. So, yes, on my website, which I totally didn't just Google <laughs> right now, uh, is the quote from Derek Jarman, which says that understand that sexuality is as wide as the sea, understand that your morality is not law. And there's another part to it, and I think he says, understand that we are you. And I think it's really important that we think that despite the incredibly powerful part of our identities, which is made up by a sexual identity, we're also just normal people as well. And perhaps that common humanity is the way that we can best promote the things that we choose to do consensually. Miles, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting. And I think it's there's a lot you've covered and it's been amazing. Absolute um, pleasure, Miles. We're going to be having an episode where members can send in their questions. So um, if you have any questions for Miles or for the rest of the team, uh, you can email us at podcast at recon.com. Have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>